Section 10 of Soldier's Pay by William Faulkner Recorded for LibriVox.org by Sandra Chapter 3, Parts 3 and 4 3. On board the Frisco, Limited, Missouri, April 2nd, 1919 Dear Margaret, I wonder if you miss me like I miss you. Well, I never had much fun in St. Louis. I was there only half a day. This is just a short note to remind you of waiting for me. It's too bad I had to leave you so soon after. I will see my mother and attend to a few business matters, and I will come back pretty soon. I will work like hell for you, Margaret. This is just a short note to remind you of waiting for me. This damn train rocks so I cannot write anyway. Well, give my regards to Gilligan. Tell him not to break his arm, crooking it, till I get back. I will love you always. With love, Julian. What is that child's name, Joe? Mrs. Powers, in one of her straight dark dresses, stood on the porch in the sun. The morning breeze was in her hair, beneath her clothing like water, carrying sun with it. Pigeons about the church spire leaned upon it like silver and slanting splashes of soft paint. The lawn sloping fenceward was grey with dew, and a negro, informally in undershirt and overalls, passed a lawnmower over the grass, leaving behind his machine a darker green stripe like an unrolling carpet. Grass sprang from the whirling blades and clung wetly to his legs. What child? Gilligan, uncomfortable in new hard serge and a linen collar, sat on the balustrade moodily smoking. For reply, she handed him the letter, and with his cigarette tilted in the corner of his mouth, he squinted through the smoke, reading, Oh, the ace. Name's Low. Of course, Low. I tried several times after he left us, but I never could recall it. Gilligan returned the letter to her. Funny kid, ain't he? So you scorned my affections and taken his, huh? Her windy dress molded her longly. Let's go to the garden so I can have a cigarette. You could have it here. The padre won't mind, I bet. I'm sure he wouldn't. I'm considering his parishioners. What would they think to see a dark, strange woman smoking a cigarette on the rectory porch at eight o'clock in the morning? They'll think you're one of them French, what do you call em's? The loot brought back with them. Your good name won't be worth nothing after these folks get through with it. My good name is your trouble, not mine, Joe. My trouble? How do you mean? Men are the ones who worry about our good names, because they gave them to us. But we have other things to bother about ourselves. What you mean by a good name is like a dress that's too flimsy to wear comfortably. Come on, let's go to the garden. You know you don't mean that, Gilligan told her. She smiled faintly, not turning her face to him. Mon, she repeated, descending the steps. They left a delirium of sparrows and the sweet smell of fresh grass behind them, and were in a graveled path between rose bushes. The path ran on between two formal arching oaks. Lesser roses, rambling upon a wall, paralleled them, and Gilligan, following her long stride, trod brittle and careful. Whenever he was among flowers, he always felt as if he had entered a room full of women. He was always conscious of his body, of his walk, feeling as though he trod in sand so he believed that he really did not like flowers. Mrs. Powers paused at intervals, sniffing, 
tasting dew upon buds and blooms, then the path passed between violet beds to where against a privet hedge there would soon be lilies. Beside a green iron bench beneath a magnolia, she paused again, staring up into the tree. A mockingbird flew out, and she said, There's one, Joe. See? One what? Bird nest? No, a bloom, not quite. But in a week or so, do you know magnolia blooms? Sure, not good for anything if you pick em. Touch it and it turns brown on you, fades. That's true of almost everything, isn't it? Yeah, but how many folks believe it? Reckon the loot does? I don't know. I wonder if he'll have a chance to touch that one. Why should he want to? He's already got one that's turning brown on him. She looked at him, not comprehending at once. Her black eyes, her red mouth like a pomegranate blossom. She said then, Oh, magnolia. I thought of her as uh, something like an orchid. Do you think she's a magnolia? Not an orchid, anyways. Find orchids anywhere, but you wouldn't find her in Illinois or Denver, hardly. I guess you're right. I wonder if there are any more like her anywhere. I don't know, but if there ain't, there's already one too many. Let's sit down a while. Where's my cigarette? She sat on the bench, and he offered her his paper pack and struck a match for her. So you think she won't marry him, Joe? I ain't so sure any more. I think I'm changing my mind about it. She won't miss a chance to marry what she calls a hero, if only to keep somebody else from getting him. Meaning you, he thought. Meaning me, she thought. She said, not if she knows he's going to die? What does she know about dying? She can't even imagine herself getting old, let alone imagining anybody else she's interested in dying. I bet she believes they can even patch him up so it won't show. Joe, you are an incurable sentimentalist. You mean you think she'll marry him because she's letting him think she will, and because she is a good woman? You are quite a gentle person, Joe. I ain't, he retorted with warmth. I am as hard as they make him. I gotta be. He saw she was laughing at him, and he grinned ruefully. Well, you got me that time, didn't you? He became suddenly serious. But it ain't her I'm worrying about. It's his old man. Why didn't you tell him how bad off he was? She, quite feminine and Napoleonic. Why did you send me on ahead instead of coming yourself? I told you I'd spoil it. She flipped her cigarette away and put her hand on his arm. I didn't have the heart to, Joe. If you could have seen his face and heard him. He was like a child, Joe. He showed me all of Donald's things. You know, pictures, a slingshot, and a girl's undie and hyacinth bulb he carried with him in France. And there was that girl and everything. I just couldn't. Do you blame me? Well, it's all right now. It was a kind of rotten trick, though, to let him find it all out before them people at the station. We done the best we could, didn't we? Yes, we did the best we could. I wish we could do more. Her gaze brooded across the garden, where in the sun beyond the trees bees were already at work. Across the garden, beyond a street and another wall, you could see the top of a pear tree, like a branching candelabra, closely bloomed, white, white. She stirred, crossing her knees. That girl fainting, though. What do you... Oh, I expected that. But here comes a fellow, like he was looking for us. 
They watched the late conductor of the lawnmower as he shuffled his shapeless shoes along the gravel. He saw them and halted. Mr. Gillum, Reverend say for you to come to the house. Me? You Mr. Gillum, ain't you? Oh, sure, he rose. Excuse me, ma'am. You coming too? You go and see what he wants. I'll come along after a while. The negro had turned shuffling on ahead of him, and the lawnmower had resumed its chattering song as Gilligan mounted the steps. The rector stood on the veranda. His face was calm, but it was evident he had not slept. Sorry to trouble you, Mr. Gilligan, but Donald is awake, and I'm not familiar with his clothing as you are. I gave away his civilian things when he... when he... Sure, sir, Gilligan answered in sharp pity for the grey-faced man. He don't know him yet. I'll help him. The divine ineffectual would have followed, but Gilligan leaped away from him up the stairs. He saw Mrs. Powers coming from the garden, and he descended to the lawn, meeting her. Good morning, doctor, she responded to his greeting. I've been looking at your flowers. I hope you don't mind. Not at all. Not at all, my dear madam. An old man is always flattered when his flowers are admired. The young are so beautifully convinced that their emotions are admirable. Young girls wear the clothes of their older sisters, who require clothes principally because they do not need them themselves, just for fun or perhaps to pander to an illusion of the male. But as we grow older, what we are loses importance, giving place to what we do, and I have never been able to do anything well save to raise flowers. And that is, I think, an obscure emotional housewifery in me. I had thought to grow old with my books among my roses. Until my eyes became too poor to read longer, I would read. After that, I would sit in the sun. Now, of course, with my son at home again, I must put that by. I am anxious for you to see Donald this morning. You will notice a marked improvement. Oh, I am sure I shall, she answered, wanting to put her arms around him. But he was so big and so confident. At the corner of the house was a tree covered with tiny white-bellied leaves like a mist, like a swirl of arrested silver water. The rector offered his arm with heavy gallantry. Shall we go in to breakfast? Emmy had been before them with Narcissi, and red roses in a vase repeated the red of strawberries in flat blue bowls. The rector drew her chair. When we are alone, Emmy sits here, but she has a strange reluctance to dining with strangers, or when guests are present. Mrs. Powers sat, and Emmy appeared briefly, and disappeared for no apparent reason. At last there came slow feet on the staircase, slanting across the open door. She saw their legs, then their bodies crossed her vision, and the rector rose as they appeared in the door. "'Good morning, Donald,' he said. "'That, my father?' "'Sure, Luke. That's him.' "'Good morning, sir.' The divine stood huge and tense and powerless as Gilligan helped Mahon into his seat. "'Here's Mrs. Powers, too, Lute.' He turned his faltering, puzzled gaze upon her. "'Good morning,' he said, but her eyes were on his father's face. She lowered her gaze to her plate, feeling hot moisture against her lids. "'What have I done?' she thought. "'What have I done?' She tried to eat but could not, watching Mahone, awkward with his left hand, peering into his plate, eating scarcely anything, and Gilligan's healthy employment of knife and fork, and the rector, tasting nothing, watching his son's every move with grey despair. 
Emmy appeared again with fresh dishes. Averting her face, she set the dishes down awkwardly and was about to flee precipitately when the rector, looking up, stopped her. She turned in stiff, self-conscious fright, hanging her head. "'Here's Emmy, Donald,' his father said. Mahone raised his head and looked at his father. Then his puzzled gaze touched Gilligan's face and returned to his plate, and his hand rose slowly to his mouth. Emmy stood for a space, and her black eyes became wide, and the blood drained from her face, slowly. Then she put the back of one red hand against her mouth and fled, blundering into the door. I can't stand this. Mrs. Powers rose unnoticed, saved by Gilligan, and followed Emmy. Upon a table in the kitchen, Emmy leaned, bent, almost double, her head cradled in her red arms. What a terrible position to cry in, Mrs. Powers thought putting her arms round Emmy. The girl jerked herself erect, staring at the other. Her face was wrung with weeping, ugly. "'He didn't speak to me,' she gasped. "'He didn't know his father, Emmy. Don't be silly.' She held Emmy's elbows, smelling harsh soap. Emmy clung to her. "'But me! Me! He didn't even look at me!' she repeated. It was on her tongue to say, "'Why should he?' But Emmy's blurred sobbing and her awkward wrung body, the very kinship of tears to tears, something to cling to after having been for so long a prop to others. Outside the window was a trellised morning glory vine with a sparrow in it, and clinging to Emmy, holding each other in a recurrent mutual sorrow, she tasted warm salt in her throat. Damn, 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 she said amid her own racking, infrequent tears. Four. In front of the post office, the rector was the center of an interested circle when Mr. Saunders saw him. The gathering was representative, embracing the professions with a liberal leavening of those inevitable casuals, cravatless, overalled or unoveralled, who seemed to suffer no compulsions whatever, which anything from a captured still to a negro with an epileptic fit or a mouth organ, attracts to itself like atoms to a magnet, in any small southern town, or northern town, or western town, probably. Yes, yes, quite a surprise, the rector was saying. I had no intimation of it, none whatever, until a friend with whom he was traveling, he's not yet fully recovered, you see, preceded him in order to inform me. One of them airplane fellers. "'That's what I say. If the Lord had intended folks to fly round in the air, he'd have give em wings. "'Well, he's been closer to the Lord than you'll ever get.' "'This outer, kindly, curious fringe made way for Mr. Saunders. "'Closer not feller'll ever get, anyway,' guffaws. "'This speaker was probably a Baptist. Mr. Saunders extended his hand. "'Well, doctor, we're mighty glad to hear the good news.' Ah, good morning, good morning. The rector took the proffered hand in his huge paw. Yes, quite a surprise. I was hoping to see you. How is Cecily this morning? He asked in a lower tone. But there was no need, no lack of privacy. There was a general movement into the post office. The mail was in and the window had opened, and even those who expected no mail, who had received no mail in months, must needs answer one of the most enduring compulsions of the American nation. 
the rector's news had become stale in the face of the possibility of a stamped personal communication of some kind, of any kind. Charlestown, like numberless other towns throughout the south, had been built around a circle of tethered horses and mules. In the middle of the square was the courthouse, a simple utilitarian edifice of brick and sixteen beautiful ionic columns stained with generations of casual tobacco. Elms surrounded the courthouse, and beneath these trees, on scarred and carved wood benches and chairs, the city fathers, progenitors of solid laws and solid citizens who believed in Tom Watson and feared only God and drouth, in black string ties or the faded brushed grey and bronze, meaningless medals of the Confederate States of America, no longer having to make any pretense toward labor, slept or whittled away the long drowsy days while their juniors of all ages, not yet old enough to frankly slumber in public, played checkers, or chewed tobacco and talked. A lawyer, a drug clerk, and two nondescripts tossed iron discs back and forth between two holes in the ground, and above all, brooded early April, sweetly pregnant, with noon. Yet all of them had a pleasant word for the rector as he and Mr. Saunders passed. Even the slumberers waked from the light sleep of the aged to ask about Donald. The divine's progress was almost triumphal. Mr. Saunders walked beside him, returning greetings, preoccupied. Damn these woman folks, he fretted. They passed beneath a stone shaft bearing a Confederate soldier shading his marble eyes forever in eternal rigid vigilance, and the rector repeated his question. She's feeling better this morning. It's too bad she fainted yesterday, but she isn't strong, you know. That was to be expected. His unannounced arrival rather startled us all. Even Donald acknowledges that, I'm sure. Their attachment also, you see. Trees arching greenly over the street made a green tunnel of quiet. The sidewalk was checkered with shade. Mr. Saunders felt the need of mopping his neck. He took two cigars from his pocket, but the rector waved them away. Damn these women! Minnie should have done this. The rector said, we have a beautiful town, Mr. Saunders. These streets, these trees, this quiet is just the thing for Donald. Yes, yes, just the thing for him, Doctor. You and Mrs. Saunders must come in to see him this afternoon. I had expected you last night, but remembering that Cecily had been quite overcome. It is as well you did not, though. Donald was fatigued, and Mrs. P. I thought it better to have a doctor just as a precaution, you see and he advised Donald to go to bed. Yes, yes, we had intended to come, but as you say, his condition, first night at home, and Cecily's condition too, he could feel his moral fibre disintegrating, yet his course had seemed so logical last night after his wife had taken him to task, taking him as a clinching argument in to see his daughter weeping in bed. Damn these women, he repeated for the third time. He puffed his cigar and flung it away, mentally girding himself. About this engagement, doctor. Ah, yes, I was thinking of it myself. Do you know I believe Cecily is the best medicine he can have? Wait, as the other would have been interrupted. It will naturally take her some time to become accustomed to his... To him, he faced his companion confidentially. He has a scar, you see. But I am confident this can be removed even though Cecily does become accustomed to it. 
fact, I'm depending on her to make a new man of him in short time. Mr. Saunders gave it up. Tomorrow, he promised himself. Tomorrow I'll do it. He's naturally a bit confused now, the divine continued, but care and attention, and above all, Cecily, will remedy that. Do you know, he turned his kind gaze on Mr. Saunders again, do you know he didn't even know me at first when I went into his room this morning? Merely a temporary condition, though, I assure you. Quite to be expected, he added quickly. Don't you think it was to be expected? I should think so, yes. But what happened to him? How did he manage to turn up like this? He won't talk about it. A friend who came home with him assures me that he doesn't know, cannot remember. But this happens quite often, the young man, a soldier himself, tells me, and that it will all come back to him some day. Donald seems to have lost all his papers, save only a certificate of discharge from a British hospital. But pardon me, you were saying something about the engagement? No, no, it was nothing. The sun was overhead. It was almost noon. Around the horizon were a few thick clouds, fat as whipped cream. Rain this afternoon. Suddenly he spoke. By the way, doctor, I wonder if I might stop in and speak to Donald. By all means, certainly. He'll be glad to see an old friend. Stop in, by all means. The clouds were steadily piling higher. They passed beneath the church spire and crossed the lawn. Mounting the steps of the rectory, they saw Mrs. Powers sitting with a book. She raised her eyes, seeing the resemblance immediately. The rector's Mr. Saunders is an old friend of Donald's, was unnecessary. She rose, shutting her book on her forefinger. Donald is lying down. Mr. Gilligan is with him, I think. Let me call. No, no, Mr. Saunders objected quickly. Don't disturb him. I'll call later. After you've come out of your way to speak to him? He'll be disappointed if you don't go up. You're an old friend, you know. You said Mr. Saunders is an old friend of Donald's, didn't you, doctor? Yes, indeed. He is Cecily's father. Then you must come up by all means. She put her hand on his elbow. No, no, ma'am. Don't you think it would be better not to disturb him now, doctor? He appealed to the rector. Well, perhaps so. You and Mrs. Saunders are coming this afternoon, then. But she was obdurate. Hush, doctor. Surely Donald can see Miss Saunders' father at any time. She firmly compelled him through the door, and he and the divine followed her up the stairs. To her knock, Gilligan's voice replied, and she opened the door. "'Here's Cecily's father to see Donald, Joe,' she said, standing aside. The door opened and flooded the narrow passage with light, closing. It reft the passage of light again, and moving through a walled twilight, she descended the stairs again, slowly. The lawnmower was long since stilled, and beneath the tree she could see the recumbent form and one propped knee of its languid conductor, lapped in slumber. Along the street passed slowly the hourly quota of negro children, who seeming to have no arbitrary hours, seemingly free of all compulsions of time or higher learning, went to and from school at any hour of a possible lightened eight, carrying lunch pails of ex-molasses and lard tins, some of them also carried books. The lunch was usually eaten on the way to school, which was conducted by a fattish negro in a lawn tie and an alpaca coat, who could take a given line from any book from the telephone directory down and soon have the entire present personnel chanting it after him, like Vashel Lindsay. Then they were off for the day. 
The clouds had piled higher and thicker, taking a lavender tinge, making bits of sky laked among them more blue. The air was becoming sultry, oppressive, and the church spire had lost perspective until now it seemed but two dimensions of metal and cardboard. The leaves hung lifeless and sad as if life were being recalled from them before it was fully given, leaving only the ghosts of young leaves. As she lingered near the door, she could hear Emmy clashing dishes in the dining room, and at last she heard that for which she waited. Expect you and Mrs. Saunders this afternoon, then, the rector was saying as they appeared. Yes, yes, the caller answered with detachment. His eyes met Mrs. Powers. How like her he is, she thought, and her heart sank. Have I blundered again? She examined his face fleetingly and sighed with relief. How do you think he looks, Mr. Saunders? she asked. Fine, considering his long trip. Fine, the rector said happily. I had noticed it myself this morning. Didn't you also, Mrs. Powers? His eyes implored her, and she said yes. You should have seen him yesterday to discern the amazing improvement in him. Eh, Mrs. Powers? Yes, indeed, sir. We all commented on it this morning. Mr. Saunders, carrying his limp Panama hat, moved toward the steps. Well, doctor, it's fine having the boy home again. We're all glad for our own sakes as well as yours. If there's anything we can do, he added with neighborly sincerity. Thank you, thank you, I will not hesitate. But Donald is in a position to help himself now, provided he gets his medicine often enough. We depend on you for this, you know, the rector answered with jovial innuendo. Mr. Saunders added a compliment of expected laughter. As soon as she's herself again, we, her mother and I, expect it to be the other way. We expect to be asking you to lend us Cecily occasionally. Well, that might be arranged, I imagine, especially with a friend. The rector laughed in turn, and Mrs. Powers, listening, exulted. Then she knew a brief misgiving. They're so much alike. Will they change his mind for him, those women? She said. I think I'll walk as far as the gate with Mr. Saunders if he doesn't mind. Not at all, ma'am. I'll be delighted. The rector stood in the door and beamed upon them as they descended the steps. Sorry you cannot remain to dinner, he said. Some other time, doctor. My missus is waiting for me today. Yes, some other time, the rector agreed. He entered the house again, and they crossed grass beneath the imminent heavens. Mr. Saunders looked at her sharply. I don't like this, he stated. Why doesn't someone tell him the truth about that boy? Neither do I, she answered. But if they did, would he believe it? Did anyone have to tell you about him? My God, no. Anybody could look at him. Made me sick. But then I'm chicken-livered anyway, he added with mirthless apology. What did the doctor say about him? Nothing definite, except that he remembers nothing that happened before he was hurt. The man that was wounded is dead, and this is another person, a grown child. It's his apathy, his detachment that's so terrible. He doesn't seem to care where he is, nor what he does. He must have been passed from hand to hand, like a child. I mean about his recovery. She shrugged. Who can tell? There's nothing physically wrong with him that surgeons can remedy, if that's what you mean. He walked on in silence. His father should be told, though, he said at last. I know, but who is to do it? 
Besides, he's bound to know some day, so why not let him believe as he wishes as long as he can? The shock will be no greater at one time than at another. And he's old, and so big and happy now. And Donald may recover, you know, she lied. Yes, that's right. But do you think you will? Why not? He can't remain forever as he is now. They had reached the gate. The iron was rough and hot with sun under her hand, but there was no blue anywhere in the sky. Mr. Saunders, fumbling with his hat, said, But suppose he... he does not recover? She gave him a direct look. Dies, you mean? she asked brutally. Well, yes, since you put it that way. Now that's what I want to discuss with you. It is a question of strengthening his morale of giving him some reason to, well, buck up. And who could do that better than Miss Saunders? But, ma'am, ain't you asking a lot, asking me to risk my daughter's happiness on such a poor bet as that? You don't understand. I'm not asking that the engagement be insisted upon. I mean, why not let Cecily, Miss Saunders, see him as often as she will, let her be sweethearts with him if necessary until he gets to know her again and will make an effort for himself. Time enough then to talk of engagements. Think, Mr. Saunders, suppose he were your son. That wouldn't be very much to ask of a friend, would it? He looked at her again in admiration, keenly. You got a level head on your shoulders, young lady. So what I'm to do is to prevail on her to come and see him, is it? You must do more than that. You must see that she does come, that she acts just as she acted toward him before. She gripped his arm. You must not let her mother dissuade her. You must not. Remember, he might have been your son. What makes you think her mother might object? He asked in amazement. She smiled faintly. You forget I'm a woman, too, she said. Then her face became serious, imminent. But you mustn't let that happen, do you hear? Her eyes compelled him. Is that a promise? Yes, he agreed, meeting her level glance. He took her firm, proffered hand and felt her clean, muscular clasp. A promise, then, she said, as warm, great drops of rain dissolving from the fat, dull sky splashed heavily. She said goodbye and fled, running across the lawn toward the house before assaulting grey battalions of rain. Her long legs swept her up and onto the veranda as the pursuing rain foiled, whirled like cavalry with silver lances across the lawn. End of section 10 This recording is in the public domain.